If you have your Bibles, please open to Ephesians chapter 4. That's what we'll be looking at first. But then also John chapter 14. For much of this year, we've been doing a series of meditations. And for the past four weeks, this is the fifth week, we've been doing sort of a mini-series under that heading on the Trinity. And this morning I would like us to consider the Holy Spirit. And to do so in the light of what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, as well as the words of Jesus to his disciples the night before his death. Our text here in Ephesians 4 is verse number 30 in which Paul tells the Ephesian believers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is given in the midst, this is, the context of this is that Paul is giving them instruction on how they are to behave as the children of God. Uh, earlier in verses 22 to 24 in Ephesians 4, Paul has told the Ephesians to put off the old and to put on the new. If you look at verses uh, 22 to 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And in the section that follows, um, the chapter divisions are artificial because it goes into chapter 5, Paul gives six concrete examples of how we are to live now that we have put on the new self. Um, there are at least three features that are common to all of these. First of all, they concern our relationship with others. Uh, holiness is not some type of mystical condition um, that somehow we experience in a relationship with God, but quite separate from other human beings. No, we are to practice, we are to experience unity within the context of human relationships. Secondly, oftentimes in this passage, we'll have a negative prohibition, which is then balanced by a positive command. Oftentimes we make the mistake of telling someone, don't do that, but we don't tell them what they should do instead. Paul doesn't make that mistake. Uh, he's intensely practical. He tells us what we should not do, and then he tells us what we should do in its place. And then lastly, the third thing we find is that a reason is given for this command. It's either stated explicitly or it is implied in the teachings of Jesus and his disciples. The section begins with the word therefore. So Paul is drawing out, he's drawing conclusions based on what he said earlier. The first example is in verse number 25. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we all are all members of one body. So the prohibition is that we are to put off falsehood, lying. That's the negative. Get rid of that. In its place, we are to speak truthfully to our neighbors. And the reason for this is because we are all of one body. The second example is verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. The third example is in verse number 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Again, the negative, you know, don't steal. If you used to steal, don't steal anymore. Instead, do something with your hands. Why? So that you can give to those who are in need. The fourth example is verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building up 
of building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Now Paul switches from what we do with our hands to what we do with our mouths. Speech is in fact a wonderful gift from God. It is one of the ways in which we bear the image of God. As we've seen over the past few weeks, God is a speaking God. When he created the world, he said, let there be light. Um, Like God, we speak. Unlike his other creations who make noises, sounds, dogs bark, lions roar, birds sing, um, we speak. Now, we do not create worlds as God did when he spoke. Um, but we can, in fact, do incredible harm with our speaking. And therefore, we have uh, the negative command that we are to be careful. You know, Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And then uh, the positive is that we should speak that which is helpful for others, building them up. Just a side note. Jesus spoke uh, about the significance of what we say. Out of the overflow of the heart... The mouth speaks. And then a few verses later, this is in Matthew 12. I tell you that that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Heavy stuff. And then at this point, having given us four examples... Paul seemingly introduces a new thought. Verse number 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, in the pattern, we might see this as the reason why we are not to say bad things and why we are to, in fact, use edifying speech to build each other up. I think there is, in fact, a wider application. Earlier, Paul said we are not to give the devil a foothold. Here he warns against grieving the Holy Spirit. This is what I want us to focus on, at least in this passage. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person, which is evident in the language that Paul uses. To grieve or to cause sorrow, pain, or distress, only persons can feel this. Animals may feel pain, but don't know that they feel grief. We grieve one another, our fellow human beings. The Spirit is a person. We've seen in the past few weeks there is one God, three persons. And I think that automatically people see the Father as a person, the Son as a person, not quite so sure about the Holy Spirit. This passage and what we will see in John 14 affirms that the Spirit has personhood. Lest we think, oh, this is very New Testamenty, this is something that we find in the New Covenant, we find the matter of grieving the, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah 63, I will tell you of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us, yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. We see it in Isaiah 63, but I think it's, I don't know if I would say it's common sense, but 
grieving must be seen in light of love. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, a London pastor in the 19th century, in a sermon on this passage said, there is something very touching in this admonition, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. It does not say, do not make him angry. A more delicate and tender term is used, grieve him not. There are some men of so hard a character that to make another angry does not give them much pain. And indeed, there are many of us who are scarcely to be moved by the information that another is angry with us. But where the heart is so hard that it is not moved when we know that we have caused others grief. Let me read that again. But where is the heart so hard that it is not moved when we know we have caused others grief? Grief is, in fact, the sweet combination of anger and love. In this sermon, by the way, Spurgeon had three points, the love of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit, and finally, grieving the Spirit. And it was the first that he spent, I think, more than half of the sermon on, the love of the Spirit. I would submit to you that the capacity for love is a mark of personhood. And the Spirit of God can be moved because, it can be grieved because he loves Because he loves, we acknowledge him to be a person, as is God the Father and God the Son. What grieves him? What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? Those things that are unholy. Because you will notice that Paul refers to him as the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes he's simply referred to as the Spirit. But here, Paul wants to make very clear that the Spirit is holy. And those things that are unholy, things he's been talking about that we should put off, These are the things that grieve him, particularly the misuse of speech. He is the spirit of truth, and when we speak falsehood, then we are in fact going against him and we are grieving him. Paul mentions that we are sealed for the day of redemption. This is what the spirit has done for us. Um, But the focus, I think, is that we should take care not to grieve the spirit. He is a sensitive spirit. He hates sin, discord, and falsehood. And if we want to avoid grieving him, we should avoid these things as well. Just to go beyond this, the fifth example that Paul gives is found in verse 31 of chapter 4, and it goes to chapter 5, verse 2. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Briefly, this I mention this passage because it's Trinitarian. We've been told not to grieve the Spirit, and now we are told to be imitators of God the Father. As children imitate their parents, so we are to imitate, we are to copy our Father who is in heaven. I read this passage last week when we looked at the matter of God the Father. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. So we are to be like our Father, but we are also to be like our brother. God the Son, the Lord Jesus. We are to live as he did, lives of self-sacrifice. He gave himself up for us. 
By the way, if Paul had only said, be imitators of your father, we're like, well, he's in heaven, I'm down here. How, how, how does that, what does that look like? How am I supposed to do that? But the reality is, the Lord Jesus came and lived among us. And he showed us how it is that we are supposed to live lives of love and self-sacrifice. We are to imitate the Father, we are to learn of the Son, and we are not to grieve the Spirit. Now if you would turn to John chapter 14. John 14. A passage that I think is familiar to most. When we began this this exercise, this series, mini-series on the Trinity, I mentioned uh, a quote, I think, from Sinclair Ferguson, that he finds it fascinating that the last night Jesus is alive before his death, what does he teach his disciples? What is the main point of what he's saying? And it's the Trinity. I don't think we see that. We're not looking for it. But he talks about the Father. He is the Son. Um, And now what we will see, he talks about sending the Spirit. Jesus is going to be dead within 24 hours of his speaking to his disciples. And after he is gone, what is to be left? What is going to be his legacy? A group of 12 disciples, and actually 11 because one betrayed him. What will mark them as disciples or followers of this man, Jesus? And what will, in fact, encourage them to continue in his absence? Well, the mark of his people is love. And the source of their encouragement is the Holy Spirit. On that last night, we have five specific sayings about the Spirit, about the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. The King James has comforter, the NIV has counselor. What Jesus has to say on this last night um, has important parallels in other New Testament books, but it's built on previous statements. This isn't like the last night Jesus springs this on his disciples oh by the way let me tell you about the Holy Spirit Uh, John the Baptist when he baptized Jesus gave this testimony I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him I would not have known him except the one except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and then Speaking to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And after his resurrection, before his ascension, we will hear Jesus say to his disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. So all of these are to be seen in the context of what he said that last night with his disciples. If you would follow along as I read, beginning in verse number 15 of John chapter 14. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. 
the key is verse number 15. Grammatically, uh, if, if you love me, controls what we see in verses 15 to 17. But in terms of the thought, it continues through verse number 21. I would say in many ways it is the key to what we read in the next chapter, 15 and 16. Um, if you back up a bit to chapter 13 we find that Jesus has demonstrated his love for his disciples. He will demonstrate it ultimately in his death within the next day. Chapter 13, verse 1 begins, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus has commanded his disciples in chapter 13, verse 35, to love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But this is the first time, chapter 14, verse 15, that Jesus speaks of their love for him. It's fascinating. He's told them that they are to love one another. It's the mark of a disciple. But here he says that they are to love him. If they love him, they will keep his commandments. It's an amazing thing to consider. I have a bunch of grammatical stuff here that I think I will skip. But there are in, in Greek four classes of condition, you know, if this, if that. And what we find here is when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is what we find when the leper came to Jesus and said, if you are willing, you can make me whole. Jesus neither assumes that his disciples will love him, but he also does not assume that they will not. He simply says that if indeed they truly love him, they will obey what he commands. And there is the connection between love and obedience. John would write in his first epistle, this is love for God to obey his commands. Now verse number 16, the request. It's important to see this verse in conjunction with the previous, but not in terms of condition. Jesus doesn't say, if you love me and obey my commands, then I will ask the Father to send the Counselor or the Comforter. No. Um, verse number 15 is their part. Verse number 16 is the part of Jesus. I will ask the Father to send another Comforter or another Counselor. The word in Greek is parakletos. Uh, many of you are familiar with that. Paraclete. Um, interestingly enough this word shows up again in 1 John in his first epistle in which he refers to Jesus as our advocate or the one who speaks to the Father in our defense so Jesus is paraclete comforter, counselor he's going to send another one that is the spirit He's a counselor, not in the sense of a legal counselor, um, not in the sense of a marriage counselor. Um, he is a comforter. He is someone who gives encouragement, who gives aid, who strengthens. Not in the sense of a quilt to keep you warm on a cold night. Um, in some circles, people have used it to come alongside with. And I won't argue the point, but I think it misses something of what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is another one is coming. 
And for us, as we consider the matter of the Holy Spirit as person, if Jesus is a person, I think people have no problem with that, and he is a comforter, a paraclete, and he's sending another one, then we can safely assume that this other one is also a person. In the context, that of Jesus' departure, it is implied that the disciples already have one. That is Jesus, the one who is leaving. Therefore, Jesus is asking for another one who will be with them forever. If we want to know what the Spirit does, then we need to read the Gospels and see what Jesus did. Jesus, as he taught, as he strengthened, as he helped and encouraged his disciples, this is what the Spirit does as well. Verse number 17, who is this? It refers to the Spirit. But at this point, the disciples don't have that information as such. Jesus identifies for them the paraclete as the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth because he communicates truth. It is worth noting, if you know John 14 at all, verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is truth, do we have a problem with him being the spirit being the spirit of truth? If he is a counselor, comforter, Jesus is, the spirit is as well, then it makes sense that he is in fact the spirit of truth. And the work of the spirit in this area is spelled out in detail in chapter 16. His work. But Jesus points something else out. While he was here on earth, during his earthly ministry, he was not accepted. The world cannot accept him, and it will not accept the spirit as well. It doesn't accept the spirit. It cannot accept it because it does not see him. It does not know him. Some would argue that this is grossly unfair. How dare God, in fact, judge people or condemn them? How can they be held accountable for that, for failing to accept something, someone they cannot see? And here is the connection with Jesus. Jesus came into the world. People could see him and hear him, touch him. They could see what he did, and yet they did not accept him. Those who believed in him did accept him. And those who believe in Jesus will accept the Spirit as well. Verses 18 to 20. The first paraclete comforts. I will come to you before long. The world will see me anymore, but you will see me. And here he speaks of his post-resurrection appearances. Jesus did in fact appear to his disciples. And again, in something that may seem to be grossly unfair, as far as we can tell, Jesus, after his resurrection, did not appear to any unbelievers. He only appeared to those who believed. And we're like... You know, if he had just appeared to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would have believed. And the reality is, no, they would not have. They would not have. Jesus does, in fact, appear to them in chapter 20. And what does he say to them? Peace be with you. 
there are some who have suggested that when Jesus says, I will come to you, it refers to the coming of the Spirit. But it really misses the point of what he is saying. The Spirit comes because Jesus, in fact, will be put to death and will be raised from the grave and ascend into heaven. You see, Jesus cannot ask the Father for another comforter until he has left. And once the first paraclete who came in human flesh has ascended to the Father, then the Spirit will in fact be poured out on his people. It's only after the resurrection, I think, that the disciples came to understand this. Let me wrap this up. My purpose in our meditation today is to make clear that the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity. I think most Christians would say, yes, the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity. They're just not quite so sure that he is a person. But we've seen what Paul said, that in fact the Spirit can be grieved, something that is rooted in love. And we've heard the words of Jesus the night before his death, promising that another comforter, another counselor, would come. I imagine that most people would agree that Jesus was a person, is a person. This requires of necessity that the Spirit be a person as well. You might be thinking, what's the big deal, Damon? Why have you spent an entire sermon on this? Because it points to relationship. We saw last Sunday as we looked the matter of God the Father in the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus refers to the Father at least 20 times. I think we missed that. Um, Since God is our Father, it means we have a relationship with him. It gives us purpose, which is to bring glory to him versus shame. Because he is our Father, he is our model. We are to love and we are to be gracious as our Father loves and is gracious. He is our audience. We don't want to please others. We don't seek to please others. It is our Father whom we seek to please. And conversation, prayer. Our Father speaks to us. We are to respond in prayer. This requires a relationship. And then at the end of chapter 6, our confidence and trust is to be in him. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear. This is something the pagans run after. Your Father will take care of you. If the Holy Spirit of God is in fact our counselor, our comforter, does this not also point to a relationship? We may not articulate this, but oftentimes I think we think of the Spirit as a force, as an energy to keep us going. He does encourage us. He does give us strength. But all of that is rooted in the fact that he loves us and we have a relationship with him. And I think if we lose sight of that, in some way we grieve him. We don't make him angry as such. I think we grieve him. There is pain. He who lives within us, who is our counselor and comforter, we just sort of brush him aside, or we reduce him to the force. 
May the Spirit be with you. May the Force be with you. And we forget that He is, in fact, a person. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we are grateful that you have not left us as orphans, that you did in fact send your Son, the Lord Jesus, as a counselor, Isaiah prophesies, wonderful counselor, as a comforter, one who teaches and instructs, one who is the truth. Now that he has ascended, you have sent your Spirit, counselor, comforter, the Spirit of truth. Forgive us when we think less of him than we should. When we imagine him to be some type of energy, some type of force or force field. And in a sense, we seem to have no relationship with him. He lives within us. May he work in our hearts and our minds in this coming week as we think on these things what it means to be your children. We're to imitate you. We're to follow the example of Christ. And we are to be very aware of the Spirit, the sensitive Spirit, and not to grieve Him. I thank you for bringing us together today. I thank you for the gift of your spirit. May he comfort us in these difficult days. May he remind us of your truth that one day there will be the resurrection. May he go with us as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please and we'll sing the doxology together.